Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Last week, Hillary Rodham Clinton and Chelsea Clinton visited the National Constitution Center to discuss their new book, The Book of Gutsy Women, Favorite Stories of Courage and Resilience. They shared stories of the gutsy women featured in the book and also explored how some of those women have shaped the Constitution. The conversation, moderated by MSNBC correspondent Joy Ann Reed, was held before a sold-out audience at the National Constitution Center. First, you'll hear an introduction from NCC President Jeff Rosen. Here's Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center! I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution, which is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Beautifully said. And we are so thrilled to welcome back to Philadelphia Chelsea Clinton and Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. Wow. Secretary Clinton, you're back there and you, can, you can't see this, but you're getting a standing ovation even before you've come out. <laughs> Secretary Clinton is a great friend of Philadelphia and of the National Constitution Center, and she was last here uh, in 2013 to receive the Constitution Center's Liberty Medal. And it's wonderful to have her back. I need to quickly tell you about the great book events we have coming up here in the next couple weeks. We have Rick Stengel, uh, former head of the Constitution Center, talking about his new book, Infowars. We have Eric Foner, the great historian, coming to talk about his new book called The Second Founding. And I will be back here with Dahlia Lithwick to discuss my new book, Conversations with RBG, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Life, Liberty, and Law. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our moderator for tonight, who will introduce our guests of honor. Please join me in welcoming from MSNBC, Joy Ann Reed. You need the mic, and it is a long way. Thank you very much. All right. Okay. Hello, everyone. There are a lot of you. Wow. Let me try not to fall on my way up here. Okay. I think this is my chair, I believe. All right. Let me sit. Whew. How's everyone doing? Excellent, excellent. Well, I am thrilled to be here in Philadelphia with all of you for a conversation with Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton about their newest project, The Book of Gutsy Women, Favorite Stories of Courage and Resilience. That deserves a hand clap. So this is the first book um, that Hillary and Chelsea Clinton have done uh, together. And what I love about it is it's a celebration of women and courage. And we know that uh, women and courage go together very well, particularly in this era. We're finding that out every day, are we not? And what I love about it is it's telling the stories of women you know, some you know, and some that you may not know. And it's telling about their stories really of survival, of, cha of meeting challenges and beating them. Um, and it also has a lot of personal aspects to it, a lot of personal reflections um, from both um, Secretary Clinton and from Chelsea Clinton about themselves, about people they know. Some of these are women that they know well, but also women all the way from history. And it brings together these two generations of women uh, each of whom are very accomplished and brilliant, and it gives you sort of their take together on the accomplishments of all of these great women. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, our two guests here, who you know very well, that's why you're all here. 
Chelsea Clinton is a champion for girls and women through her advocacy, her writing, and her work with the Clinton Foundation. She's also an adjunct assistant professor at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, and she lives in New York City with her husband, their children, and their dog. And she also has an exceptional Twitter account. I was just complimenting on her on that. Hillary Rodham Clinton is the first woman in U.S. history to become a major party's presidential nominee. She also served as Secretary of State after nearly four decades in public service, advocating on behalf of kids and families as an attorney, as First Lady, and as a United States Senator from New York. She's also a wife, mother, and proud grandmother. And with that, I would like to welcome to the stage Hillary Rodham Clinton and Chelsea Clinton. So this is exciting. It's exciting for us. Hugely it's exciting. It's very always exciting. Great indeed. to be in Philadelphia at the Constitution Center. So thank you. Absolutely. And and the congratulations first of all on the book. Thank, thank you. you. It's thank phenomenal. You. And and it's a great read. Um, and it's it's sort of a way of getting to know the two of you as a relationship, right? As a mother and daughter. Uh, so I want to start by talking to you. I mentioned to you guys backstage, I've done a collaboration before. It's not easy, you know, to bring two strong minds together to write one book. So I want to ask each of you, what was it like collaborating with Chelsea? For me, it was incredibly um, satisfying. Uh, it was a little frustrating from time to time because we had to agree on the women that we chose, and we started off with endless lists of uh, women we admired, and then we kept cutting it back, but we wrote over 200 essays, and 103 are in the book, so we had to keep working on why we chose the women we did. Um, and we had some really vigorous discussions that we'll you know, maybe get into later, but all in all, it was really a great experience for me. I think Chelsea has a slightly different take. <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, spoil what she might say, but I know that initially the collaboration was, you know, a little bit challenging, right? Well, um, you know, I also just want to echo our gratitude to the National Constitution Center for welcoming us. So warmly uh, today and it is always a particular uh, privilege for me to be in Philadelphia because this is where my husband grew up and my mother-in-law is here tonight so oh yeah please absolutely um, so really it's just um, uh, an honor to be here but also just such a, a personal privilege um, so to pick up on where my mother left off uh, it was a real joy uh, to work together um, in many respects because uh, we were able to revisit um, and I was able to kind of excavate some of my kind of most treasured memories from childhood of my mother talking to me about uh, the women who had really kind of galvanized and, and motivated her as a little girl. And I remembered hearing those stories as a kid, whether it was kind of Nancy Drew or her sixth grade teacher, and then the women that she really came to admire as she got older, particularly Shirley Chisholm and Geraldine Ferraro, who I remember her taking me to see when I was four years old and she came to Arkansas. And yet there also were some challenging aspects to our collaboration. Um, not only did we each have to kind of vigorously kind of go to the mat for the women we felt like had to be included, as our editor continued to tell us that, no, we couldn't have a book that weighed eight pounds, which is what I think it would have been had we had every woman we wanted to initially, um, but also because we have very different working styles. Uh, so I type on a computer. Like, I, I write on a computer. I may outline still, like pen to paper, but I write on a computer. I edit on a computer. Um, my mother writes longhand. And while I knew this, 
I didn't quite understand what that would mean for our collaboration together. So what that meant, I would like send attachments of my most recent essays to her and she would take photographs and text them to me of like, you know, whatever essay she just finished. Thankfully, she has pretty legible handwriting, but it made it hard to then kind of go back and forth with like different suggested edits or ideas or kind of where I wanted to add in my voice. And I kept saying to her, like, Google Docs are your friends. Like, you know, or we can just work like in comment boxes and track changes. Like, I'll show you, we can, we have different colors. Like, it's very easy to follow the lines of logic and editing. And she just kept saying, like, this has worked for me. So after about a month of, like, continuing to kind of plea and try to persuade, um, maybe even a little bit of, like, loving guilt tripping, I just realized, like, none of it was working. And um, I had to accept that we had very different writing styles, but hopefully kind of could still merge them together, even if one started kind of longhand and one started on a computer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I have to say, in my defense, you know who else writes longhand? She says this every, she said this to me literally like every day that we were working together. Barack Obama writes his books longhand. Every day, every day. She was like, you know what? Like President Obama does it too. And I was like, you know what? Like I bet Sasha and Malia wish he didn't as well. So I mean, you know. Okay, well, the book, it definitely reads like a conversation. Because, so the great thing about it, um, for those of you who are obviously all here and going to read the book, is that you sort of are conversing back and forth, either writing an essay, but then having a bit of you and a bit of you. You're, you're sort of mixing together. But you start off with, I want to start off your, with your first impressions in the book, which is really uh, one of the most poignant parts of it. You start out writing about Dorothy Rodham, Grandma Dorothy, and Virginia Kelly, Grandma Ginger. Talk a little bit about these two phenomenal women who mean so much, obviously, to both of you. Well, when we started this conversation about um, our different experiences uh, growing up, because when I was growing up, when I was a young girl, um, the only women I knew who worked outside the home were my teachers and the public school librarians. And Chelsea had a very different experience. Uh, so we talked about the people we knew, closely in our families who influenced us, uh, who we admired, who we thought were gutsy. And then, of course, people that we encountered, including fictional, uh, as well as historical and contemporary uh, women. And I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, my mother and Bill's mother were two of the gutsiest women that I've ever known. And uh, certainly for Chelsea, having those two women as her grandmothers uh, was uh, incredibly uh, formative. Um, she had my mother until she was an adult, so she could really develop a, an, a relationship with her. Uh, and uh, sadly, Bill's mother died um, when she was just 12. So we talked a lot about that, and we thought, oh, really, we need to start with those two women. Do you want to... So, add to that? I mean, I am so grateful to my grandmothers. Um, and as my mom said, my grandma Dorothy um, was a huge part of my life and still very much remains so. Like, I think about her every day, probably because in the last years of her life, I spoke to her every day. And she still really remains my North Star. I often think, like, what would she advise me to do? Kind of what would she think would be the right thing to do in this moment? Um, one of the gifts that both my grandmothers gave me, though, was kind of the expectation of um, having an opinion and standing up for myself. And I, I felt that so clearly when my grandma Ginger asked me what I wanted for my eighth birthday and I told her I wanted her to quit smoking. And she did. And she'd smoked two packs of cigarettes for decades. But I think she was so impressed that I had the gumption to ask for that. Um, and that she had been talk, she loved the word gumption, and she'd been talking to me a lot about like why it was so important that girls have gumption, that she thought, well, heck, like I better follow through on this. And just what a gift that she gave me. Um, and I'm so grateful, because it certainly, after she got breast cancer, probably helped her live a little bit longer, um, because her lungs by that point had, had really largely recovered. So 
I am so thankful to both my grandmothers. And uh, Joy, we couldn't have written this book and not included them. But Joy, we also want people to think about the gutsy women in their lives. Because every person here knows at least one, probably more than one, or are yourselves. And starting from the personal and then going uh, to the historical um, was a way of us, we hoped, igniting a conversation about that. And, and, you know, gutsy women um, almost always get a great deal of opposition. Um, There is still, you know, even in the 21st century, it feels like there's this great social prohibition to women um, stepping forward, seeking power, um, to women exercising their power. I think about what the Speaker of the House currently goes through, the pushback, and you wonder if she would get the same pushback if she were a man, right? You wonder it all the time. You wrote about a young woman who's experiencing that, and she is still a child, um, and her name is Greta Thunberg. And I love that you included her here. This is actually one of my favorite essays in the book. Talk a little bit about about not only standing up for yourself, but as a young woman who's fighting for something huge and important and doing that despite the fact that people are, I mean, the viciousness of the attacks against her have been something. I mean, you can probably res- yeah, uh, have resonate a little idea it. what that's a like. A little bit. <laughs> and so do you, I know. <laughs> um, we included uh, Greta in the book, um, before she sailed across the ocean and spoke at the UN because we were both so impressed with her lonely campaign to raise awareness about what needs to be done uh, to try to stop the effects of climate change. Frankly, before it's too late for many parts of the world. You know, she started off uh, going to her, uh, going on her own to the uh, government buildings in uh, Stockholm and she was literally by herself and nobody joined her and then eventually a couple of kids joined her and and then as we know it led to a a global uh, effort to raise awareness about climate change that enlisted millions of young people. There were several things that uh, I think we both were drawn to when it came to including Greta. First that she was just unapologetically a 16 year old girl. She didn't pretend to be anybody else but herself. And she very quickly told people that she was autistic. She had um, a form of uh, autism on the Asperger's uh, spectrum, and she owned up to it. And she was, again, fearless and unapologetic. And then as we watched her uh, be willing to put herself out there to speak truth to power and engender wild support, great adulation from those who saw what she was trying to do and believed in her, and then the most negative, vicious attacks on her girlhood, on her autism, on how she spoke, and everything else that the other side could think of to try to diminish her, Uh, it just made us even more proud that we'd included her. But I, I think that for both of us, she was a, uh, a real example of what young women are doing around the world on a lot of important issues. And also the need to stand up for facts and science. Um, and that she just is so kind of consistently and persistently clear that she's not voicing her opinions. You know, she is amplifying and elevating kind of what the overwhelming majority of scientists are telling us about climate change and kind of what they are kind of urging and exhorting us to do, what we must, must do. And Joy, just since kind of we're here tonight, I want to um, mention uh, Tony Pergolin and Judy London, who are from Bancroft, um, because one of the women that we write about in the book is Margaret Bancroft, who kind of in the in the late mid 19th century when she was a teacher um, here in, in Pennsylvania, believed that every child deserved the right to an education and that every child could learn. And that was not the prevailing view at the time. And when she said she wanted to start kind of her own school to be able to kind of bring that philosophy into the world that regardless of ability, every child could learn, you know, she was also really derided and denigrated and told, like, why would she bother? 
Like, why would she bother with these kids? And she just was dogged and determined. And the school and organization that she started um, still exists today. And among its many kind of achievements is one of the largest sources of American Special Olympians, which I think is pretty fantastic. So one of the things I enjoyed the most about the book is it's sort of a catalog of a lot of, you know, my heroines, you know, Shirley Chisholm probably being, you know, growing up, like the biggest hero in my household, she's part Guyanese, my mom's a bit, a bit biased, um, Mae Jemison, like people like that. But I love the fact that you also, in some parts of the book, combine someone known with, some, with pe- someone who is less known. People should know Claudette Colvin, but people tend not to, and they tend to, you know, know Rosa Parks. Everybody knows who Rosa Parks is. She decided she didn't want to sit in the back of the bus, but the fact that Claudette Colvin was another teenager who did it first, I love that you all included her. So I think that Claudette Colvin is one of the great heroes in American history that we don't talk about, and she is someone that I think every everyone should learn about in school, and I'm so thankful to my eighth-grade history teacher in Little Rock, Arkansas, Uh, at Horseman Junior High School for teaching me about Claudette Colvin. Because as Joy said, nine months before Rosa Parks, Claudette stayed seated on the bus. She was on her way home from school and a white woman got on the bus and told her she had to get up and she refused to get up. And as she later said, she felt like she had Harriet Tubman on one shoulder and Sojourner Truth on the other shoulder, just holding her down in her seat. And she just knew that she couldn't get up. She was arrested. She was dragged off the bus. Uh, She was horrifically treated while she was in jail. Her father and the local pastor um, had to plea and work and raise money to help get her out of jail. She gets out of jail. Kind of people tell her she needs to be quiet, and she just says no. And so she became one of the original plaintiffs, one of the five original plaintiffs in Browder v. Gale, which was the ruling... um, ultimately, uh, by a district court, upheld by the Supreme Court, that said, no, like, bus segregation is illegal. It's illegal in Montgomery, and it's illegal in the state of Alabama. And so while we know Rosa Parks' name, really justly, we should know Claudette's too, because she was 15, and her story is part of what propelled finally desegregating public transportation in Alabama. Yeah. And <laughs> there's a clap. You, you include some of the people that, I, that are some of my fa- have become some of my favorite people, the young women um, of the Parkland students who are so brave um, and who came forward and became the face of really probably the most successful, I think, to date, gun reform movement really since 1994 when there was an assault weapons ban actually somehow passed the Congress. Do, when you look at this kind of advocacy, particularly since you've spent so much time in public policy, People tend not to think that there will be anything actually done. These kids don't believe that. Right. Right. Well, um, the gun violence uh, is a huge issue uh, for both Chelsea and me. And we wrote about two groups of women. And I'll speak about the older generation, and Chelsea will speak about the younger, which is totally appropriate, I think. Um, and as, as Joy said, One of the characteristics of all these women in our book, despite whatever obstacles they faced or how badly they were treated, is optimism. They really believe that something will change and that they're going to play a role in making sure that it does. So we highlight women who've been involved in the uh, gun uh, violence prevention uh, efforts for quite some time. Uh, women like Sarah Brady, whose husband James was uh, so severely wounded when there was the assassination attempt against President Reagan, paralyzed in a wheelchair. Sarah Brady became the voice of uh, gun reform, and she uh, really was instrumental in getting the Brady Bill passed, which also passed in 1994 that um, my husband signed, and it has kept you know, something like two and a half million people from getting guns who shouldn't. Just imagine that, because they've been stopped at that process. Or Gabby Giffords, who was this, herself the victim of an assassination attempt. And after being so profoundly wounded and working so hard to come back through physical therapy and speech therapy, she and her wonderful husband, Mark Kelly, have been leading the charge 
for sensible gun uh, legislation. And, and Nelba Marquez Green, whose little girl was murdered at Sandy Hook, and who talks about the burdens and the pain that uh, family members uh, feel. And Lucy McBath, whose son Jordan was killed uh, for playing music too loud in his car. And the man did go to prison, thankfully. Uh, but Lucy, despite being devastated by the terrible murder of her son, said she had to do something and she became a, a gun prevention activist and now she's a member of Congress. So we, we try to talk about you know, women uh, who have been on the front lines and have often taken their own tragedies and tried to convince people that something had to be done. But this group of young people, like uh, what Joy was uh, talking about, are really a new phenomenon. They, they came out of Parkland, they came out of other uh, gun-related tragedies, and they are absolutely determined that it's going to be a voting issue and that people are going to get the changes that they are seeking to try to save lives. And you, we highlight um, six young women activists um, because while I think so much attention has kind of been focused on the Parkland students and on, on Emma Gonzalez, um, you know, what I think has been really remarkable about the Parkland students is how they have, from the beginning of dealing with this horrific tragedy that affected all of them, understood that they were not the only ones who were affected. And they really have not only shared the spotlight, but given their platform to others who are working on different aspects of our kind of gun violence epidemic in our country. And so, you know, we write about Naomi Wadler, whose mother had gone to high school with Fred Gutenberg, whose daughter was murdered at, at Parkland. And kind of as Naomi was un learning about this horror and how it affected her family, she felt like she had to do something. So at 11 years old, you know, she started her own school strike of kind of kids walking out, kind of protesting gun violence. And then she spoke at kind of March for Our Lives about the need to really understand uh, in so many instances, it's black girls who suffer the highest rates of gun violence in our country. And we also write about uh, Jasmine Wildcat, who has really taken on kind of the challenges of gun violence, uh, not only in her own Native American community, but in other Native American communities. You know, we write about Julia Spohr, who my mother and I met a few days ago in Washington, D.C., uh, whose father died by suicide, kind of with a gun. And, you know, she and her mother had kind of worked to raise awareness of the suicide epidemic in our country. And then after uh, the tragedy in Parkland, she felt like she had to do more, and she started Students Demand Action, which now has more than 40,000 members. So just kind of these young women, Joy, who are not only kind of determined to change the status quo, are racing ahead and supporting each other to do so kind of at every level of government with every opportunity. And I just am in awe of them, and particularly as a mother, incredibly grateful to them. Absolutely. Well, speaking of women who made history, you do write about Frances Perkins, who's the reason we have Social Security. Um, we can give that a hell. Well, we do love Social Security, right? We can give that a um, And you write about women, you know, from this era when women were not supposed to be part of government, were not supposed to be making decisions. Um, so I'm going to set that aside. I'd love for you to talk about Frances Perkins and why um, she, and you write about Eleanor Roosevelt, who I know is your idol. Um, we're here in the National Constitution Center. So I want to ask you, as somebody who is an attorney, as somebody who was an attorney on that uh, commission that looked at Richard Nixon's potential crimes and what needed to be done with him, um, whether or not, you know, the idea of gutsy women, right, is that you're standing up to power, that you're standing up for the people who are in need, which is what Ms. Perkins managed to do. I wonder if you see the same kind of potential and resiliency to overcome what really feels to a lot of people, I think, like a constitutional crisis right now. And if so, who is it? Who do you see out there now that has the strength to stand up really for the Constitution, um, given the state of affairs in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Well, how appropriate that we would talk about a constitutional crisis, um, such as the one we are in, uh, right here at the Constitution Center. And 
I want to thank Jeffrey Rosen uh, for his leadership and for what this center really means. It's a living, breathing reminder uh, of how the Constitution was created and how we have not only tried to um, change it in ways that furthered the underlying ideals of our country, but also tried to understand what it is our founders were teaching us uh, when we uh, look at it. And there is a reason there is a section on impeachment in the Constitution. And as Joy said, I had the rather unusual experience of being on the impeachment inquiry staff back in 1974 investigating Richard Nixon. And one of my, uh, one of my assignments as a young lawyer was to write um, the memo that was later published with a few other of my uh, colleagues about what is a high crime and misdemeanor. And clearly the founders said to themselves, look, we're gonna have elections and that will represent, we hope, the will of the people. But in between elections, if we have a leader who is abusing power, obstructing justice, um, treating the rest of the government with contempt, um, we have to have a remedy. And so impeachment rooted in uh, sort of Anglo-Saxon law going back uh, to the English, became the remedy that the founders put into our Constitution. Now, why is that important? Because if you go back and you read uh, some of the early debates and some of the writings around the Constitution, what was one thing they were particularly worried about? They were worried about foreign interference in the government. They were worried that foreign powers would try to subvert the government of the United States through influencing uh, elected leaders or appointed leaders. It, it was a, a very real concern uh, to our founders. And so we are now um, at the point where we have an impeachment inquiry beginning. Uh, evidence is being presented and being evaluated. Uh, and then the, the House will have to make a decision as to whether or not uh, there uh, is enough evidence to support articles of impeachment. Uh, personally, I think that there's a really good case that there is enough evidence to support articles of impeachment. So, um, and, and I think it's I think it's really important, as Joy was asking, to look at the people who are now on the leading edge of this momentous historic moment. And the person who's furthest out is the speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who is a very gutsy woman. And, <laughs> and she has, has really tried very hard to uh, handle this in, in, with the seriousness and deliberativeness that it uh, requires. But what is particularly missing are any people in the opposite party who are speaking up. Because back in 1974, Republican members of the House of Representatives who served on the Judiciary Committee voted for the Articles of Impeachment. Republican senators, after the House Judiciary Committee vote, went to see Richard Nixon and said, you should resign for the good of the country. They put country over party. We write about a woman who does that in our book, Margaret Chase Smith, the Republican senator from Maine, who was the first member of her party to take on Joseph McCarthy. And she gave a stunning speech on the floor of the Senate, speaking about uh, how important it was to not only take him on for the good of but for the good of the Republican Party. And if you go back and you read that, and, and we quote from it in the book, you have to ask yourself, where is anybody from the Republican Party willing to be the Margaret Chase Smith? You know, there's one obvious candidate who happens to be a woman Republican senator from Maine who could take on that role. Um, but there are others as well. And so it is 
especially important um, at this moment for citizens to educate themselves to learn about what impeachment is and what it isn't, to understand the reason the founders put it in the document to begin with, uh, and to follow the evidence because we're getting more and more evidence all the time about abuse of power, about obstruction of justice, and about contempt of Congress. Um, and this assault on our rule of law and our checks and balances among the three branches of government is a serious threat to our democracy and to our Constitution. Thank you. Um, to stay on the, the constitutional question just for a moment, um, another, you know, issue that has come up from time to time, and I have some great uh, women lawyer friends or constitutional lawyers who worry a bit about the process of it, but the Equal Rights Amendment comes up from time to time. I know it's come up before. Um, and the idea of going back and looking at the Constitution and putting in an explicit protection for women. It, it, the risk of that, of course, is if you open up the Constitution to a convention, all sorts of things that you might not want might wind up also debated and wind up in there. Do you think just looking at it from your point of view, is that risk worth it? I think it's 33 or 34 states that have already ratified it. Well, you know, there's two ways to amend the Constitution, one through a convention and one through the process that the Equal Rights Amendment was uh, following, which is to have uh, states uh, vote in favor of it. And you're right, we're, we're very close in the number of states that are needed to uh, add the Equal Rights Amendment. So you wouldn't have to go the convention route, which I, I do think, given the passions of our time, would be uh, a very... A difficult process, to say the least. Uh, what right now we're trying to do is defend the Constitution we've got and try to make sure that its principles are uh, respected. So I do think that there could be, there was a hope that Virginia would have passed it. That was one of the states that uh, people were uh, hoping for. Uh, it may be that after this uh, next election, because Virginia elects their state legislature in the off years, so they're actually having an election in November, there might be enough votes to revisit it. And I know that the people who are advocating for it in uh, Virginia intend to do that. Um, so it, it is unfinished business uh, because part of, we write about the suffrage movement and, 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 you know, there's a really important story to be talked about and discussed and taught in schools because next year is the 100th anniversary of uh, women in the United States getting uh, the right to vote. And it was so hard and it took so long. And even once it was achieved, black women, Native American women, Latino women were often prevented uh, from voting even though they had the constitutional right. It's just been so difficult to get uh, equality uh, under the Constitution because you know, originally, as Barbara Jordan famously says in uh, this great speech she gave when she voted for the articles of impeachment against Nixon, and we quote some of it in the book because she's one of my personal uh, heroines, she said, you know, when that constitution was written, I was not included. And for the longest time, I thought George Washington and Alexander Hamilton had just overlooked me. Uh, but then we kept going and we kept adding people. And, and now, you know, it is more inclusive, but we have to protect it. We can't take it for granted. Um, so I think there's still work that should be done, but in the right way, so it doesn't cause more well, problems. And, and Joy, you know, one of the really kind of vigorous proponents of the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s was Betty Ford. Right? And so again, I think it's important in this moment to remember um, that we have really heroic Republican women who stood against, you know, incredible kind of forces in their own party for what they knew was right. Um, often for kind of reasons, as my mom kind of said from Margaret Chase Smith, because they believed it was not only the right thing for our country, but also for their party. And we've been thinking a lot about kind of Betty Ford because it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Yeah. And one of the things I didn't know until my grandmother got breast cancer was how much kind of our family and every family, um, the millions of American families who have had to confront breast cancer and our own stories really owed to, owed to Betty Ford, you know, for her courage 
um, and gutsiness in kind of publicly talking about and showing her experience with breast cancer and her husband kind of in the hospital standing next to her after her mastectomy, you know, effectively saying, you know, there should be no shame attached to this diagnosis or this treatment and how profound that was for our country and how then that became part of our family's story too. Um, but she was an incredibly kind of gutsy Republican woman. And as my mom and I, perhaps not surprisingly to anyone here, you know, frequently talk about is kind of, we wish there were more of them today. Yeah. Well, speaking of, on, on a different uh, subject, um, another place where women both have to fight for equality and have to have a lot of guts to do it is, of course, athletics. Um, I love that you include Abby Wambach in this book. I personally think Abby Wambach is one of the greatest athletes and also she fiercest is. people she out is. there. Yes. So talk a little bit about that, too, because I like the fact that you both talk about sort of heroes in the political world, sort of the thing I'm obsessed with, but also in athletics. You talk about women who happen to overcome uh, resistance to women participating in sports and equal pay is an issue. Yes, yes, and thank you to the U.S. uh, Women's National Team for taking this issue on, head on. And, you know, I, you know, I loved soccer as a kid, Joy, so much. Although I quickly realized that I had um, not enough talent to match my love for the sport. Um, But I just kind of was captivated by kind of our American uh, women's soccer team, particularly kind of in, in 1999, kind of when we won the World Cup and then kind of the tidal wave that that really helped unleash of, of girls and young women playing soccer. But one of the things that my mom and I learned when we kind of were working on this book was you know, really how much women's soccer around the world owes to Title IX. You know, that before kind of Title IX, there were about 700 um, girls who played kind of serious competitive soccer in the United States. Last year, there were 390,000. And so many of the um, women that we watched in the magnificent World Cup that we won this summer um, had gone to university here, Joy, not only on the American team, but many of the kind of incredible athletes on other teams who were competing. And part of what kind of we really felt so compelled though to include kind of Abby's story is that she kind of defines gutsiness for us, that it wasn't just kind of her dream, it was what she felt compelled to do for other women athletes, kind of her just fierceness when she kind of kissed her then wife after that tremendous victory a few years ago that she was so unapologetically all of herself and said, you know, if you're going to accept my kind of incredible talent on the field, you have to accept like the incredible love I feel in my heart. So just all that she's done for so kind of many of us who kind of love the sport, kind of believe in equal pay, believe in equal rights, I think is really tremendous. So we could not have not included her, I would say. Well, I have questions uh, here from the audience. I'm going to I'm going to throw those out to to both of you. Um, and thank you all for sending them in. Lots of people want to talk to you ladies. So, here's the first one. I love this question. What advice would you give to a 17-year-old gutsy woman entering the world? And that's Kavia Desu who has that question. Who's a high school senior? Do you want to jump in that? Either way. Great. Um, so I guess the first thing I would say is I love the fact you describe yourself as gutsy. Um, Own that and feel good about it. And it's different for everybody. And and that's something that Chelsea and I believe so strongly. Um, We were just talking about an athlete and, and before that talking about a politician and talking about activists. Finding whatever your... Uh, sense of purpose is in your life and then going after it and being committed to it is a, a big part of being gutsy. Now we also think for the women that we highlight, making sure you're doing something for somebody else uh, is a really special element of being gutsy. So it's not only what you want for yourself, but how you intend uh, to help others or to provide service. And at 17, I don't know if you're a junior or a senior, um, but thinking about your next steps, uh, whatever they might be, 
and being determined to uh, really test yourself, you know, t taking courses or pursuing uh, educational or employment opportunities uh, that you are going to find challenging and constantly, you know, just making it as possible as you can that you're going to continue to grow and that you will keep finding new ways to uh, define your life and create uh, opportunities for yourself. Uh, because these women, they are not perfect. And, and we make that point absolutely clearly because I believe that too many young women are crippled by their belief they have to be perfect. You know, perfectionism is a disease and it is something that prevents too many smart, gutsy uh, women of all ages, but particularly young women, to take the risks that might be uh, required to continue to uh, mature and develop into the person you're meant to be. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big advocate for do the best you can, take stock of what you did, learn from your shortcomings and your mistakes, but don't be paralyzed because you're not perfect. And I would just add um, some advice that my mother kind of gave to me that I'll kind of summarize as saying, it's really important to take serious criticism from serious people seriously. The people that you respect, your teachers, your family, kind of mentors, advisors. It's also important to not take serious criticism from unserious people, the people who just want to tear you down, demean you, kind of box you in. All right. Um, the question, and this is, oh, this person hasn't signed their name, but was it harder to write about living women whose stories are still unfolding than about historical figures? It's a good question. That's a great question. And you're the first person who's asked us that question. So thank you. Um, yes, I think there is an additional kind of responsibility um, in writing about someone who is still alive and still kind of living their life and kind of bringing their gutsiness to bear on whatever kind of issue they're called to um, because you don't want it to seem like the story's over because it isn't. Um, and yet, of course, when you're kind of writing an essay, you do have to have a conclusion. So I, I think there is a, a different challenge in ensuring that kind of an essay about a woman who still is kind of working and doing in the world kind of feels coherent, but also clearly is, is unfinished. So absolutely, I think it's a different challenge. So I have two uh, young people, one who is 10 named Tess, and one named Arnie who is 13, who both want to know if you're gonna run for president again, but I'm not gonna make you answer if you don't want to. Um, but, but I have to read this one, and this uh, person who wrote this is nine, and I have to ask you this because it's so sweet. Um, and this nine-year-old who didn't sign their name said, I want to be the president when I grow up. What should I study in college? P.S. I am nine. P.S. You're my hero. Aww. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> oh, wow, you are a gutsy woman. I love that. Um, well, if you're nine, I hope that you study really hard between now and college. Uh, you take advantage of your education and you read. You read as much as you have time for uh, because reading gives you a different perspective. It provides uh, an opportunity to really you know, take your imagination and fly with it. Uh, and that you also begin to think about... Um, you know, what really makes you excited? Uh, the, the women in uh, this book, some of them knew from the very beginning what they wanted to do. You know, some of them who were athletes or, or Billie Jean King, for example, who started playing tennis as a young, uh, young girl and, and just fell in love with it. Others did not come to their purpose in life until later. And sometimes it was a tragedy, like the gun violence stories that ignited that. Um, but one thing is that when uh, they were confronted by the hard work or the risks necessary to pursue their interests, they were prepared. 
And the best way to be prepared is a good education. There is no substitute for that. And whatever it is you study, whatever it is you get excited about, uh, just go all in on it. Really en enjoy the process of learning and have fun along the way. And, and value your friends and make friends. And, and if you are getting um, a little older in your community, look for something that you can do to help somebody else. Because I think you learn as much about yourself um, through helping somebody else and, and empathizing, putting yourself in that position as you do in any other aspect of your life. And I would just add, um, since we're here in Philadelphia and at the Constitution Center, there are so many incredible places here to help complement whatever you're learning in school. So not only kind of in the obvious sense, as I'm staring at the words, we the people, kind of understanding um, kind of the history of our country and this still deeply unfinished business to ensure we are a more perfect union, um, but also really, I would hope to become kind of literate in, in the sciences. Um, you know, we were talking about Greta Thunberg earlier, who has just been so stalwart in saying, you know, these are not her opinions, but she's really eloquent when she's talking about kind of what scientists are saying, even though she herself isn't a scientist. One of my great passions is to try to help people understand why it's so important to get vaccinated and it's flu season. Please get your flu vaccine um, to help protect those who can't, including my two-month-old son, Jasper. Um, so please, not only for yourself, but for those who are more vulnerable. And I think in this moment, kind of where facts and truth and science are so under assault, it's really important to be kind of fluent in, in the sciences broadly, even if that's not what you are particularly passionate about. So please go to the Franklin Institute and take advantage of all of the extraordinary things that exist here in Philadelphia. Well, I want to thank these two gutsy women, Chelsea Clinton, Secretary Hillary, I always have to give the honorific, you earned it. Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton, thank you all for being here. You will thank love you this book. Thank you very much. Thank I, you. You will love this book. Thank you, Joy. Thank you all very much. And thank you, National Constitution. Thank This episode was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. 